The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Our heart is glad in Him because we trust in Him. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's pray. Gracious God, I pray that you would do work here this morning to make our hearts glad. Not because we just want to be glad, Lord, but because we want to honor you. The text says that we are glad because we trust you. We trust your holy name. There's something about seeing and embracing your holy name that makes us glad. And so that's the work, I pray, Lord, that you would honor yourself by showing yourself off this morning, by building in us trust leads to gladness. Do that work here this morning, Father. Commission the Spirit to elevate the Son in our minds and hearts. Make us glad and honor Yourself. We pray this in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. The words appeared letter by letter upon the plaster wall in the palace of the king, and thousands of guests, many royally drunk by now, sat up and took note. The appearance of this hand and the steady writing on the wall got everybody's attention. King of Babylon was throwing a great feast and he'd called together all of his lords and his friends and his wives and his concubines and they all had come together and had been having fun all night and he had just called for the special cups, the sacred gold and silver vessels, the ones that his predecessor had stolen from that temple in Jerusalem when he destroyed that city some years before. He just called for those special gold and silver vessels. And as they began to drink wine from them and to worship the gods of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, they began to worship these gods and suddenly, immediately, the text says, the hand appeared on the wall and began to write, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin. As the prophet Daniel shortly made clear, he explained, Your days are numbered. You've been weighed in the scales and found lacking. And your kingdom is divided and given to your enemies. The writing on the wall, and it was very soon fulfilled. I doubt that the prophet Habakkuk lived to see that day, the prophet that we've been studying. He's probably dead by then, 
But this is not, this remarkable event is not that far down the road from the time that he was wrestling with God over these questions of God's righteousness and justice and his use of this wicked Babylonian. In chapter 1, the prophet had been calling out to God. As he looked around at Jerusalem and Judea and he saw them spiraling down into sin, he'd been calling out to God, What's the deal? How can you, a God of righteousness and justice, do nothing about this? What's going on? Aren't you going to answer? And, and God did. He does. He does something. He himself ordained Babylon as a judgment. He established them as a reproof. Evil amongst the people of God will be judged, and the righteous remnant among the people, they themselves will be sanctified. God's going to accomplish both ends in both groups in the same event when he calls up Babylon to Jerusalem to tear it down. But when he hears that, Habakkuk has another problem, doesn't he? If the inactivity of God had been a problem, now the activity of God was a problem. The Babylonians were even more wicked than Judah. And they weren't going to just destroy Jerusalem. They were going to destroy hordes of countries. Lots of places got torn down and pillaged as these armies ran over the earth. How, how could he do that? How could he use the wicked Babylonians? How can he do that? Is this just going to go on forever? That was his question. Well, God responded to that too. Last week we saw the Lord's abbreviated answer to that question given in a vision. A vision that he spoke in short, encapsulated form, and he said it was going to be fulfilled sometime in the future, sometime soon, from God's perspective. Maybe not soon from our perspective, but it was coming. Babylon, Babylonians and all those who are Babylonian in nature, proud and arrogant and gods unto themselves, all these sorts of people will have their way for a while, but rest assured, the end for them is coming. Their souls are not upright, they are proud, and God will deal with them. But the righteous right now can find life by faith. That was last week's passage. The thumbnail sketch of the vision. Think of, like, think of a computer, a picture, a thumbnail, when you click on it and then it enlarges. Well, in verses 6 to 20 and, and following, that's what's going to happen. It's going to enlarge, and we're going to see more of the details about how the Lord is going to deal with the proud. Look at your Bible, look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. Before I read the text, let me just give a little bit of an overview to it. You notice that verse 6 begins, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles? The basic point there is that these who were formerly oppressed are now speaking back to their oppressors in, in various kinds of, of language, some taunting and, and some, some humorous statements all designed to make clear that now the tables have been turned on you guys. They're kind of making fun at them in a, in a, a judging sort of way. But at the time Habakkuk wrote this, and, and perhaps publicly preached it, that had not yet come to pass. He was saying all this in faith, looking at the future. This day was going to come when they would respond like this. These statements were statements made and written in faith. And what of the statements themselves? Well, there are five of them in particular. They're all marked off by the word woe, as in woe to you. You can see them there. They're in verses 6, 9, 12, 15, and 19. There are five woe statements. 
And the word woe here is an interesting word. There are a couple of words in Hebrew that could be translated as woe. One of them very harsh and judgmental. Woe to you. I should say that with a very stern tone. And there's another word, the one used here, is not quite so stern and has an aspect of lament in it, of sorrow. There's still judgment there, but it's not judgment that is happy about it. It's judgment that is sad about it. Perhaps used when somebody's died or at a funeral. That's what's happening here. Woe. Five times. And we're going to cover three of those this morning and two next week. So obviously the passages are a little interconnected, but the three we're going to look at this morning are more closely connected. And together, they, they pull together and they make one main point. Here's the main point for this morning's sermon. Mourn. There's the aspect of woe there. Mourn and take heart. The Lord will deal with those who unjustly advance themselves. Mourn and take heart. Two possible responses here. Which one applies to you is going to depend on which side of the Lord's activity you're on here. Mourn or take hope. The Lord will deal with those who unjustly advance themselves. With those who are looking out proudly for number one and they are arrogantly advancing themselves with little or no regard for anyone or anything else. The Lord is going to deal with people like that. Wherever it is found, mourn over that or take heart. That's the point of this morning's passage. Let me read it and we'll move on to look at three particular pronouncements against this self-advancement. I'm going to read verses 6 to 14. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own and for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man, violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The first pronouncement against unjust advancement is found in verses 6 to 8. God will deal with those who unjustly enrich themselves. God will deal with those who unjustly 
enrich themselves, who abuse others to illegitimately advance themselves financially. Middle of verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. A judging, sorrowful lament for one who has piled up mound upon mound of things that didn't belong to him. And how did he do that? Well, initially, the first metaphor used here is, is that of a, of a banker. An unjust banker. You maybe think of like somebody making a loan, like a, like a, a loan shark or something, who, who puts out money at exorbitant interest rates, expecting actually and hoping that when the inevitable default occurs, he'll collect all the collateral. Slowly, this person comes to own everything, and all of those who are debtors to him are his slaves. It's the first metaphor here. But obviously, he's not literally talking about banking. When he's referring to the Babylonians, he's talking about violence and war and invasion. The words spoil and plunder make that clear. Babylon actually accumulated all of its wealth by attacking and robbing other nations. So plunder is. You take stuff from them. And then you demand tribute, which is just continuing plunder, on, on promise that you won't come and attack them again. That's how Babylon hoarded in the wealth of the nations, like that fisherman in chapter 1 who just gathered in haul after haul of fish, emptying the ocean of all the fish just to enrich himself. That's what Babylon did there enriching himself with the wealth of the nation so that he could throw vast parties for himself and his friends. Verse 6 then brings up the question though, for how long? How long is that going to happen? And notice here the question of timing, it comes up again, but this time it's not asked of God, it's asked of the proud person. How long do you think you're going to be able to get away with this? How long? Verse 6, well, for a while until suddenly, verse 7, suddenly everything changes. The oppressed masses, they wake up, they rise up, and they say, enough of this. And the lender is caused to tremble by that. All these people he's held down, they rise up and they terrify him. And the payments that he was receiving, he thought those were the payments made to him. He finds out, oh, actually those were loans made to me, and now I have to pay them back. Uh-oh, I'm going to default on the loans. My creditors actually are telling me time's up. The end, the writing on the wall. Picture's clear here. The lender becomes the borrower. The plunderer becomes the plundered. But why did this all come to pass? Something to note carefully here. This is not just a simple case of, of random history. Like, you know, you win some and you lose some. This guy wins for a while while his luck holds and then he loses. And this guy wins for a while while his luck holds. It's not random. History's not working randomly. Look closely at how verse 8 explains this. Because. There's something causal going on here. Because. Because you have plundered many nations. And note, it's not just plundered my people. It's plundered many nations. God is concerned about all of the people. God's concerned about this kind of activity amongst humanity. Not only in relation to His people. Now, He uniquely cares about them. But He cares about everybody as well. Because you have plundered many nations... 
you will be plundered. And again, you'll be plundered for, because of, the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. He's concerned not just about many nations, but about individual people, individual cities, and even the earth itself. He's concerned about that. See, this very same phrase, word for word, in verse 17 next week, he repeats it so that we get it. He's concerned about justice everywhere, not only amongst his people. Not something random here. This is not the language of randomness. It's the language of justice, of retaliation even. But who is it that's keeping watch and is then going to retaliate? Well, certainly it's the people who were oppressed. That's obvious. They have, they've had enough of it and they rise up. But it's not only that. Behind that human activity, there is a sovereign, just God he has already made clear throughout this book that God has made clear that he uses nations to judge other nations. He's made very clear that he is sovereign over all of the activities of humankind. Though people make decisions and they carry them out, behind it all is a sovereign and wise God who works all things according to the purpose of his will. Remember that from Ephesians 1. The context of the book should lead us to see God behind the activity in verse 8. But furthermore, recall that God has brought this up to Habakkuk. He's presented this vision to him as evidence of his justice. And it would be a very strange argument if this was evidence of God's justice, but God had nothing to do with it. It would be like saying, Habakkuk, look, see, I'm just. Well, actually, I didn't have anything to do with that at all. People themselves did that after I failed to do anything. But I'm still just. That's a really weak argument. I hope you hear that. I highly doubt that God is making that argument. Rather, we are meant to see that behind the causal statements in verse 8, behind the because, there is God. Watching. Keeping score. And deeply concerned about self focused people who use other people to advance themselves, to enrich themselves, who abuse others in this life, let alone in the next, but in this life, God will repay that. He will give justice to that, an eye for an eye. The punishment will fit the crime. Maybe not exactly. It will get perfectly sorted out at the end. But what he's emphasizing here is that in this life this happens. The tables are turned in history. That's what he's pointing out. The Lord will deal with those who unjustly enrich themselves. How are we supposed to respond to that? One of two ways. Mourn or have hope. Which one most closely applies to you depends on which side of the equation you're on. Are you a plunderer or are you being plundered? Please don't fall into the trap of thinking that this passage is only speaking to the, the 6th century B.C. Or that it's only talking about Babylon or that it's only talking about war. 
Remember last week in, in chapter 2, verse 4, we saw that, that God's vision, the little snapshot of it there, expanded far beyond just Babylon, and it moved to people everywhere, universally, two categories, the proud and the righteous. And what he's doing here in this section, he's, he's revealing the activity of the proud, not just the Babylonians, but of pride, what pride looks like. It speaks to all of us here, some more acutely than others. The issue here is pride that uses others to financially enrich yourself. Do you do that? Covetousness and greed are two particular sins we could put our finger on here. The proud person in this category of enriching themselves is thinking fundamentally, I want this, can I get it? I covet that. Can I get it somehow? And if it's legal, or if it's at least hard to track, or if nobody will notice, or if I'm powerful enough, then I'm going to do that and acquire. I'm going to get it for myself. I want this. I will reach out and have it. Covetousness and greed. Exploiting other people. There are a hundred ways this happens in life. There's no way I could put my finger on, on all of them or even know all of them. But I encourage you, take a moment now. Think through your financial dealings. Think through how you deal with people. Your business dealings, how you handle your money, your taxes, your employees, your partners, your clients, customers. Whatever kind of relationships that you're in, financially speaking, is equity, financial justice, a touchstone for you? Does financial justice and equity characterize how you handle your money in all sorts of different relationships? Or are primarily you thinking, even if you won't quite verbalize it like this, I'm going to do whatever it takes in all these relationships to get something for me. Does that characterize you? Is that you? Is that you just a little bit? If it is, woe to you. Here's the pleading aspect of woe. It's not only a pronouncement of judgment, it's a pleading to please turn away from this path. Realize that there is a just God who is watching and sees everything. And He will turn the tables. It will come home to you. He's talking in this passage about it will come home to you in this life. It will certainly come home in the next one. Turn. Turn away from that. It will not profit you. Turn to Christ for mercy. Could be that that is you or partially you this morning. I don't know. I suspect, though, that this passage is primarily given to the church for the second response, to create hope in us. I, I expect, I think that as a person comes to believe in Christ, 
and is being renewed on the inside and changed more and more to be like him, humble and meek, not valuing the things here on the earth so much, I think that as we are changed to be more and more like him, we are going to more often find ourselves to be the recipients of this kind of behavior. And so the message in it to us is, take heart. God sees. He'll take care of you. He is a good and wise judge and He will certainly deal with those who unjustly abuse you financially. When all hope of human justice and fairness and equity has passed away, we are to rest in the truth that God stands beside you to uphold you. He'll take care of it. In Him you can find life by faith even in the midst of being ripped off. It's true. You have an advocate. It is very natural for us to retaliate against people who do these things to us. And I think if you find yourself in that situation, you are to read this and to realize God will deal with those who unjustly enrich themselves at my expense. It will happen. Take heart. That, I think, is the first pronouncement here, the first woe against self-advancement. The second, I'm going to deal with it much more briefly, is in the next section, verses 9 to 11. God will deal with those who unjustly secure themselves. God will deal with those who unjustly secure themselves. Here the unjust activity of the proud is seen in their illegitimate attempts to establish and protect themselves and their family line from any and all harm. God's going to deal with that pride as well. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. It's evil gain again, just like the previous section, but this time it is particularly for his house, that is, for his lineage, his household. He's going through any and all means to acquire things for the sake of his household. And here's why he wants this. The two phrases, to do something, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Picture an eagle's nest or a bird's nest of some sort set high up on the side of a cliff or in the very top branches of a huge tree, far beyond all attack, far beyond any threat. The proud person here is thinking, I'm going to acquire whatever I possibly can so that I can set myself and my descendants up in a safe and secure place. I'm going to, to fortify, to, to cement my position of preeminence, and no one will be able to take us down. I'm going to do that. That's the thinking of the proud person here. And what makes this particularly evil gain, verse 10 makes clear, is the cutting off of many people's. That is, the eliminating of them. For Babylon, in, in war, that means killing, annihilating whole groups of rivals, slaughtering them or enslaving them, somehow oppressing them so that they can't challenge your rule, your authority. That's what it meant for Babylon. But notice that the emphasis is not against the violence, 
It's against the unjust securing of yourself. Woe to the person who seeks his own security. That's the emphasis. And it is self-preservation. No one else in view here. He himself is doing the protecting. And it's all doomed. This person plots and he counsels himself and his own course of action. If I do this and that, I'll secure myself and my family after me. I'll set us up really nicely. But notice the irony here. What he's actually done is he's counseled shame to himself. He's tried to build up a, a secure and a huge, solid fortress of a house. But he's actually destroyed it. In seeking to save his life, he's going to lose it. The last verse in this section talks about now the house is pictured as a living being with the stones and the wood talking to each other, testifying, hey, we were built illegitimately. We were built on a, a rotten foundation. And it's poetic here. You're supposed to hear the, the creaking and the groaning of the wood as it twists and settles and then finally collapses under its own weight. The person tried as hard as he could at everybody else's expenses to build himself up and all it's going to do is fall down. Is this all random and natural? Well, certainly there is something natural in that if you oppress enough people for long enough, you'll make some enemies and they'll rise up and cut you down. That's natural. But again, it can't be everything because God is introducing this as evidence of his just administration of the world. He must be involved somehow, and I think the hint of that is in verse 10. He says there, that he has forfeited his life, or as the NAS translates it, you have sinned against yourself. Behind the forfeiting and the sinning, there is a judge who is watching and keeping count, and he evaluates life. That was sin. This is a proud and sinful path. You have forfeited that which you wanted and that which you had, life even. There is a judge there. He pronounces, you're trying to build something, and I'm going to take it away from you. It's going to collapse. How are we supposed to respond to that? Again, mourn and have hope. Evaluate yourself again for a second. Are you given to self-preservation? Again, there are a lot of ways this could go on, that you, that you use other people or you abuse other people so as to secure your own job or your own status in your social circles, to make the place where you live, the things that you do secure, kind of move other people out of the way, you compromise them or marginalize them. A lot of ways that could happen. Let me touch on just one. Do you gossip and slander? Do you find that you tear people down with your words? Do you remove them so as to elevate yourself and secure yourself? That's what you're doing when you're gossiping and slandering. You're attacking other people and slandering them. That is, assaulting their character. And the whole goal of it is that they would look less and you would look like more. You would set yourself up in this particular circle of your friends and you would say, we all agree that person is less. I'm more secure. I've been elevated. That's what's going on when you gossip and slander. Do you do that? Ask yourself, 
Ask your spouse, do you do that? If so, you are building a house that will not stand. He is an impartial and just judge, and you will reap what you will sow. People will know that about you. It will come back to you. Turn away from that. The pleading in the pronouncement of woe is turn from gossip or from any other way that you tear people down to secure yourself. I'm confident that if you think through your life and you ask yourself that question, Lord, do I at the expense of other people seek to secure myself financially, socially, in some way? If it's true of you, he'll speak to you about that. Be quick to turn if that's you. But again, in large part, I think we're meant to hear this and be encouraged. It is very hard when the barb comes at you and you're the one being torn down. Maybe when you're the object of some racial or religious slander. You're set on the outside and people who are on the inside are doing much better than you. It's very hard to not retaliate against that. To not become bitter in your heart. We read this and to see the writing on the wall and know that God will accurately and correctly and justly deal with those who unjustly secure themselves at my expense. We are to become like Christ when people hurled insults at him. He did not retaliate, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Let it go, and he rested in God. He trusted in God had a glad heart for it. Take heart, have hope. God will deal with that pride as well. And the third pronouncement against unjust self-advancement is found in verses 12 to 14. God will deal with those who unjustly exalt themselves. There's a lifting up here as well. It's not a lifting up though to be secure. It's a lifting up for your own fame to make a name for yourself, to be highly regarded. So it's a little different than the last time. And wonderfully, God ends this section by talking about something positive, the positive thing that he is doing. So this whole section ends on what I think is a glorious high note. But it begins in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. The evil founding, establishing, and growing of a town is the focus here. But it's not just the building of a town for the sake of having a town. It's the building of a town for the sake of exalting oneself. All throughout history, from, very back, from way back in the very beginning, when Cain first built a city and dedicated it to his son, on through to Babel, when people got together and gathered together, made a city and then started to build a tower to make a name for themselves on through to kings and emperors who build palaces and cities and empires for the sake of their own names. City building and empire building has very, very often been the opportunity for people to make much of themselves and to shine off their human abilities and accomplishments. To say, look what we built. That's what's going on here. And furthermore, this city is being founded on sin and iniquity and built in blood. Others again are being abused, a 
common note through all three of these sections, the using of other people. Now, historically, conquered people were enslaved and forced to do labor, literally worked to death, to build edifices and monuments and temples and cities to the honor and glory of the victorious king and his people. Helpless people, unjustly used to advance the cause and the fame and the glory of the conquerors. But alas, woe, this too will come down. Verse 13, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, mighty is his name. He casts down all attempts at self-exaltation. He makes such people to weary themselves, laboring constantly to hoist up the great walls of their capital city to erect massive statues of themselves and of their gods, to construct ornate temples and palaces and gardens and fortresses, wonders of the world to the glory of man. They turn and they spend countless effort towards such construction, at great cost in resources and labor. But to what end? The Lord Almighty brings it all to nothing. It is all consumed in fire by the next conqueror. When the plundered becomes the plunders, they break the idols into pieces, they tear down these massive walls, and they put the torch to all the grandeur of this former ruler. He makes them all to weary themselves. That's the emphasis in this verse. To weary themselves as they struggle to build vast castles out of sand for hours on end, for a lifetime, and then the tide comes in and washes it all away. You know, none of us today fear Nineveh. Most of us can't even find it on a map. None of us are very impressed with Babylon and its grandeur and its power. We do not fear Egypt, nor Greece, nor Rome. Napoleon's France, Victoria's England, Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Soviet Union, all built on such blood and power-hungry, glory-seeking sin, so much war and struggle and energy, gone. All of it. What is true for nation-states is true for companies and organizations and families and solitary individuals as well. God Everywhere opposes the proud. Everywhere he brings to nothing all of our personal efforts to amass wealth and all of our efforts to, through this wealth, provide security for ourselves, to make for ourselves a reputation. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain, rising early and working late only to eat the bread of anxious toil. All of it is to no avail. Is this not from the Lord of hosts that proud peoples the world over across the ages have labored to make for themselves a name only to find that they're just gathering kindling for the fire? It all eventually burns. And it all will eventually burn. It all comes to nothing. Vanity, vanity, emptiness. Because... Four, verse 14. Because 
It all comes to nothing because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Why is it that the Lord of hosts, the mighty one, brings all of this human effort and attempt at self-exaltation to nothing? Why does he do that? Because he will not allow any other supposed mighty ones. He will not allow any contenders for the throne. Step back for a moment and consider history is full of men who would be gods. And all of them and all of their empires are dead. Again, notice the causality here. It is not, as I said earlier, some you win, some you lose, some randomness. This state of affairs is from the hand of God. He does it. The question of verse 13 is rhetorical. The answer is yes, clearly. From the very beginning, from the fall of Satan and in the garden at the fall of humanity, as soon as the creature reached out and tried to seize the throne, he died. Satan was cast down. Adam and his human race barred from the tree of life. And whenever proud humanity tries to go back there, he meets the angel of death and the flaming sword. It all comes to nothing. Suddenly. Yes, the Babylonian Empire reigned supreme as if a god for less than a hundred years. Yes, it's true that the sun never set on the British Empire. England controlled land all around the globe. It was always daytime in the British Empire for about 75 years. Hitler's thousand-year Reich lasted about 10. And what of us, the United States of America? We've been a world power for less than 60 years since the end of World War II. And if our nation's pride against God continues to grow, be sure of it, it won't be much longer. In the words of Isaiah the prophet, Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before Him. They are accounted by Him as less than nothing in emptiness. Do you not know have you not heard? The Lord sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely has the stem taken root. Then He blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off as stubble. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and He will... He will fill all of this earth with the knowledge of His glory. He will fill it full everywhere as the waters fill the sea. There is no sea that doesn't have any water in it. And there's going to be nowhere in all of the Lord's creation where His glorious nature is not fully known. It is going to happen. He's accomplishing that already today. But he hasn't yet fully accomplished it. We still wait for that day. We live right now in the appointed day. He has come. But we wait for the appointed day, the end, when he will come again. And will fully bring all of this to pass. Think about this for a second. 
The knowledge of God's glory. What is that? How is he accomplishing this purpose? To fill the earth full. This knowledge is not just intellectual. It has to start there. You've got to know what it is that you're talking about. But it doesn't just end there. Satan is fully knowledgeable about God's glory in an intellectual sense. And the glory of God has been made clearly known in what has been made in the creation so that men men and women everywhere are without excuse. Intellectually, it's clear. God is glorious. But that's not all that we're talking about here. The Lord is making His glory known in a relational and delightful manner. He begins intellectually, but he moves on. It must be more than that. It must also be embraced and loved and reveled in. That's what he's doing. Tasted and seen, such that the tasters and the seers leap for joy, experiencing that he is good. This glory is bound up in his nature. You can't separate them. To know the glory is to know the nature. It's to know him. And he is most fully revealed to us in the face of Christ. So now, as the message of Habakkuk 2.4, that the righteous will live by faith, as that message of life through faith is spread all across the globe, And men and women and boys and girls everywhere hear about how one can come into relationship with Christ and he can come and live inside of them by faith. As that message is spread everywhere, this glory of God is spread everywhere and the light of God shines into us. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ shines into people into their hearts when they believe. They find life by faith. It's a little complicated there. As the gospel spreads over the world, throughout the world, to every corner of every land, as it does that, what's being carried there is the message about how a person can come into relationship with Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 says that when that happens... Light shines into our hearts and we see Him and we know Him and we love Him and we embrace Him. That's how the spreading of the knowledge of the glory of God has begun. It's happening through the gospel now. It's going everywhere. But it's not yet fully everywhere. Has it saturated everything? That time is still to come. The fullness of verse 14 awaits a future time yet. Habakkuk has already made clear last week that the Lord is going to come. But he underlines it again here in this verse because this statement is actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9. He's quoting from there. And in that context, Isaiah is talking about the great new heaven and new earth when the lion lies down with the lamb and the children lead them both. There's no more violence on all my holy mountain. For the earth is full of the glory of God. That's what Isaiah says. That time is not yet here. When does it come though? When the root of Jesse strikes the earth with the rod and slays the wicked with the breath of his mouth. 
You can read more about that at the end of the book of Revelation. Christ will come. He's going to set up a new kingdom here on earth. And when that happens, He will ultimately, finally deal with all who unjustly advance themselves. It's coming. There will be a time when the proud no longer triumph. When pillaging and plundering of the weak is no more. No longer will the proud set up their own security and make for themselves a name to self-perpetuate. All such unjust, arrogant wickedness will be no more. The day is coming when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth. It's hard for me to imagine that sometimes. But he tells us here, amongst other places, his hope is that this text would get into us and would renew us and would either cause you to mourn or to have hope. To mourn in a a sorrowful and a turning way. Or if you're the object of that kind of behavior, to have hope. God will deal justly with this now and one day in the future perfectly. Take heart, He will do that. He's coming. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.